Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Killian Nell. Killian is the founding director of Recovery Cafe, and before that was the co-founder of Samaritan Inns, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., which provided transitional and longer-term drug and alcohol-free housing to people recovering from homelessness, addiction, and other mental health challenges. She's also the author of several books, including Finding Our Way Home and Descent into Love. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Killian. Welcome to uh, the Open Div Summit. I'm really happy to have you here. Such a joy to be with you again. Um, you've worked on so many interesting projects and, and you've written really meaningful books. And I first came across your book, your, your work through Descent into Love, the book you wrote, which was recommended to me by Angie Thurston. And in the book, you talk about how the nonprofit you started, Recovery Cafe, really came out of kind of your experience in this high commitment spiritual community, the Church of the Savior, which then you you kind of created a kind of like-minded community in, in Seattle. Maybe just to kick things off, could you talk a little bit about how did you kind of come across the Church of the Savior? What was so special about that community and how did that really help kind of activate you to, you know, start your first nonprofit in DC and then kind of activate you from beyond once you left the area? Sure. Well, I had just moved to Washington, D.C. back in 1982 from the Middle East. I had served three years prior to moving to D.C. in the Middle East and sometime in um, outside Tel Aviv and, and doing some work in the Gaza Strip, some volunteer work. And when I returned to the States, moved directly to Washington, D.C., I was really hungry for spiritual community, but my understanding of church had broadened during my time in the Middle East and had broadened really to include the whole world. And and so I was looking for a, a spiritual community that would call people, all of us, to common spiritual practices but not to an absolutely common theology or common belief system. And, and there's a big difference. I think sometimes church calls people to sign on to a certain theology or a certain set of beliefs, and that can be a barrier to right. entering more deeply into spiritual community. I think what appealed to me about Church of the Savior is it called me to commit to spiritual practices, which would keep my heart open to discovering these spiritual truths at a deeper level myself, instead of signing on to what someone else prescribed for me. So it, for in that way, it was a very powerful experience for me at that time in my life. And as it turns out, I have to say, it continues to be what I need. Uh, you know, it's now 40 some years later and, and it, well, no, if you count when I first arrived at uh, Church of the Savior in 1982, it's uh, many years later, but 
I was referring to since I moved to Seattle 23 years ago, it's yeah. still what I really need. Yeah. And, and for people who might be unfamiliar, what are some of those practices that were really at the center of, of the Church of the Savior's kind of orthopraxy? Yeah. Well, there, there's a, the practice of, of showing up in some kind of contemplative prayer practice. It could be centering prayer, meditation, walking meditation, but just some kind of way, some practice every day. And we say for an hour where you are trying to detach from the hamster wheel of our own thoughts right. and trying to sink more deeply into that place of, of divine love, which, which I believe is in all of us, not just some of us, all of us. But we need ways to, uh, we need practices to connect us, help us connect more fully with that place of divine love in us. And so that's one of the practices, that hour a day of some kind of contemplative practice. Then there's the practice of showing up for deepening relationship with others. So everyone commits to a both a small group where you can be deeply known and loved, and then showing up also for the, the larger community where you get to know a larger group of people. And when I say larger in the Church of the Savior, larger at no point in the history of the Church of the Savior were, were there ever more than 150 members right. in the large in the large group. So large <laughs> is relative. Um, another commitment is to show up in the world, show up for some need in the world. There's this understanding that if we journey inward to touch that place of, of divine love in us, then it will naturally compel us to journey outward to touch some place of need in the world. And there's this assumption that those in your small group will help you listen for what need is it am I to respond to, you know, because they're it can be kind of overwhelming when the world is so full of need, right? Right, right. But to, to have a small group helping you listen, to which need am I called to respond? And so there's um, a practice that everyone will be engaged with the world with, at, at the point of some need. Um, another practice is, is a practice of a commitment to nonviolence in our in all of our personal and public relationships. So does it mean we just refuse to take up arms? It means we refuse to talk to another person in a way that is uh, tears them down as violent to their spirit. So it's a, it's a very comprehensive understanding of nonviolence. And um, I could go on and on. Another is around money. I think that's uh, one that's probably hardest for people. This notion that we are not the owner of anything, really. We are the ower. And that resources that come our way in the, in the Church of the Savior, as well as in my community here in Seattle, some people have more resources flowing their way than others. But but the understanding that resources are to flow through us, 
They're not to to be hoarded by us until we can pass them on only to our children. And um, so that's another pretty radical notion of uh, a relationship to things and to the material world and to the resources, not just of money, but though, but of time. That's another kind of radical concept that our time is not just our time, but that time is also to float through us for the sake of the whole. We could go on and on about that. But those are some of the practices that I think, at least for me, and for those of us who've recommitted to this model year in and year out, because you only make the commitment for one year at a time. So so for those of us who keep recommitting, which for me now over 40 years, those are some of the practices that I feel have just kept the door of my heart cracked open to the power of transforming love. Yeah, that's so, so wonderful. And um, yeah, if you're okay, I'd love to just ask a little bit more about how some of those small groups worked. And I know you've, you've created small groups like that in Seattle as well, once you, you look at it there. Is that right? Yes. Uh, when, we, when I first arrived here in 1999, I met uh, another person, Randall Mullins, who had all for many years, like 20 some years, had longed to be a, a part of a church or church of the savior type community. And he had, you know, of course, lived in Seattle and had kids here, and there was no possibility of him moving to DC to join that community. But when he and I met each other, the first day, the first Saturday that I lived here, he and I got together for coffee. And as we talked, we realized that, you know, well, maybe if we both really hunger for this kind of community, maybe it's up to us to start one here. And, right. and so, I, but I was still a little skeptical, you know, like, uh, I, I very much doubt he'll, see the see it the same way I do and so I said well how about this you write down what are the 10 commitments that you think would be crucial for one of these ecumenical faith communities and I'll write down the 10 that I think are are crucial some of those I just mentioned to you right Um, and so we did that little exercise and again I was very skeptical but at the end of writing it down we switched papers and we have both written down the same 10 commitments, not in the same order, but but that wasn't part of the quiz, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we decided we would start a faith community here. And it was out of that faith community here, that small group of originally, I think there were 12 of us who made that first year long commitment to those practices, those spiritual practices. And it was out of that group that it was within the context of that group that my call to start Recovery Cafe became clear. And some of um, it also for Ruby Takushi, who was also in that faith community. And some of us got clear about 
about our call to uh, step into the need for a recovery cafe. Right, right. Well, and, and I'd love to maybe in a little bit jump into the recovery cafe stuff, but but I'm curious, how has that community developed over time? Is that still a group that meets in Seattle or, or was meeting uh, pre-pandemic? So yes, that initial faith community that Randall and I called into being is was called and is still is called New Creation Community. And it is um, about a year ago, I was blessed and released from New Creation Community to start another community, a small group called Beloved Community. And so New Creation continues. And if you ever want to talk to someone about it, it um, Michael Stewart is one of the primary nurturers of, of that community. But I'm uh, now uh, trying to nurture another community in Seattle. And Tell, tell the, me more about that. I'd love to well, know more. The specific call of this community, beloved community, is to be not just ecumenical, which all the Church of the Savior faith communities were and are, but it the call of beloved community is to be macro-ecumenical. And by that, I mean to cross different faith traditions and to find at our core that if we go deep enough, there's one woman in the community who's Baha'i and a, a Jewish woman and and um whatever your faith tradition if we go deep enough in our tradition we actually hit the same wellspring of of divine love and right. so that's what we're doing in that community we're exploring the different sacred texts and the different uh scriptures yeah. that take us deeper into the heart of love the heart of god and I will say we also have a real commitment in that community to cross races and to cross socioeconomic reality in very intentional ways. So that um, there's a lot of barrier crossing and a lot of learning and a lot of being stretched. The, the, the notion was that if we really want to uh, help change the world, we have to change ourselves and relationships are what change us. So right. that's the, the call of the beloved community. Cool. Very cool. So if, I would love to just dig a little bit more into like how they operate and, and how, how the kind of small groups and communities developed. And for, for context, after reading your book was so kind of taken by some of the commitments and, and the community you described that like a group of friends and I actually created a similar type of small group that is kind of almost like a secularized or interfaith um, interpretation of some of the Church of the Savior commitments. And uh, we're actually just coming up on our first year and like we're kind of going through this discernment period of uh, deciding whether or not to recommit in, in February. Um, oh, wonderful. So, what, what is yeah. the name of your group? Um, we don't really have any, we've been calling it just a formation group, kind of inspired by some of the work that Casper and Andrew did around the formation project, um, sure. and Katie Gordon and others. Um, and I know you were involved in some ways with that, but yeah, we're, we're kind of going through some of these questions right now as well of kind of, what does it mean to go through the discernment? What are we saying yes to? And, um, 
you know, as of now, it's been a fully kind of closed group, but we're thinking about how, what does it mean to bring in new members or to kind of grow? So I'd be curious, you know, would you be willing to share a little bit more about a new creation and beloved, just kind of like, how have these small groups functioned? Have they been maybe kind of, are they siloed or they're kind of these, like, do they come together? How do, you know, are new ones being created? Are new members joining? I'm curious about all of the nitty gritty details if you, if you feel to share. Well, as you know, if you've been part of a, a formation group for a year, it's messy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We in Beloved Community are coming up on our first, we made a commitment for one year. Now we're coming up on our first recommitment. So during the first year, we went really quickly deeper with each other in allowing ourselves to be you know, one of our commitments is we will allow ourselves to be deeply known and we will deeply know each other. And so, of course, one of the things that happens when you allow yourself to be deeply known is you either become just this closed off little group and kind of uh, running the risk of, of being just self-serving or you open yourself up so that others can have that same experience. And then all of a sudden you have new people in your group who aren't deeply known. And, right. And then you have to risk again, allowing yourself to be deeply known by these strangers. Right. So that's what we're coming up on as next month. We too are invited to recommit to go even deeper with each other and with these newcomers who right. uh, are going to bring so much to us. but it will push us once again out of our comfort zone. So that that's one thing I would share about. Well, and, and the newcomers, are they folks who have been kind of, I guess, affiliating with the group in some way and are now like voicing a more formal commitment? Or are they joining what has previously been a closed container and kind of, you know, starting anew at this new, new juncture? They're joining, they've been invited to explore this what was a closed container and they've been invited to explore and now make a commitment to be a part. So we yeah. have a, a period of several months where you can invite new people. Then we have a period of time where you commit and we don't in, accept anyone new for a few months and then open it again to um, inviting new people. But during that time of the closed container, we get together for several hours, two or three times, and we listen to each other's stories. And when you have shared the story of your life, you know, from the, the most painful to the, the most joyful experiences of your life with another yeah. person, it bonds you with the group in a way that, and it also makes you feel very vulnerable. And so to then invite in new people and say, oh, okay, I have to do this again. <laughs> right, right. So then that happens like, is that like once a year or so? Like when you invite new people in or does it happen? Well, uh, it's several months once a year, but there's a several month exploration period where new yeah. people can come in. And then guess what I know is going to happen is we're going to reach a point where we're too big and we're going to need to split. And that will also be very uncomfortable because people will say, but I feel so close to, 
to John. I want to be in John's community. And, you know, how we do that, I don't know. But I, I know that that the only way we can maintain that commitment to being intimately known and loved and we can practice all those commitments and the loving accountability that is required. I I think we can't just get turn into a mega church. At least that that's my feeling about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious. You mentioned loving accountability, which is something you bring up in, in your book and in regards to Recovery Cafe as well and the circles you've created there. Can you tell me a little bit more about what is that look like in practice? Like how are members and beloved lovingly accountable to each other and how do they practice that with each other? Well, when I first heard that term back in 1982 at, at Church of the Savior, I thought, hmm, accountability, that that sounded kind of punitive to me. And um, what I came to understand is that what it really means, accountability really just means being deeply known. Like I, I'll give you one example. I was in a small group one time with a, a, a gentleman who was about twice my age because I was, you know, in my 20s when I first joined Church of the Savior. And he shared in my small group that he had, had found himself attracted to a, a woman who was not his wife. And I thought, well, first I thought, wow, I've never heard anybody be so honest at church. And uh, secondly, I, uh, I listened. And what I heard was from the others in the group who had been a part of the church a lot longer than me. I was a newcomer. What I heard was no condemnation, no judgment, just a holding, a loving holding of this person as he made himself completely vulnerable and known. And then what I heard, they said, you know, what we would like to ask you is that from now on, you just make a commitment to us that you won't be alone with this woman who you feel attracted to. And he said, okay, I can make that commitment. Well, as you may guess, what ended up happening is nothing. <laughs> I mean, the, right. the man didn't end up ruining his marriage and, and causing trauma for his children. He ended up allowing others to hold that feeling with him of attraction and, and the, until the feeling passed and he continued to, to stay committed to his marriage and to his family. And that was what I experienced as loving accountability. Just because he allowed himself to be known, it didn't keep that a secret. Others were able to hold it with him and he was able to stay true to his commitments, which reflected who he really wanted to be, a right. loving husband and a great father. So that's what loving accountability is to me. When people, we allow our, it's a place where we allow ourselves to be deeply known and others hold with us whatever it is we're struggling with and they, and they're holding it with us makes it possible for us to continue to live the life that we want to live. Right, right. Well, and I'm, I'm curious 
how does the love and accountability tie into the commitments themselves? Like, is there a space within beloved or or in new creation communities for people to check in on where they're at with the with those practices you mentioned of um, you know contemplative practice or, or money or you know connecting across lines of difference or these things? Uh, definitely, the, in the weekly small group, there's the expectation that people will share where they're struggling and where they're experiencing grace and gratitude. And so there's the expectation that we'll do both. We won't ever just become a community, a community where all we do is talk about our struggles and how hard life is, that we will always hold intention all the goodness that has been given and the grace that has been given along with the struggle. And so that's uh, an expectation. It's, um, I think, maybe quite obvious to anyone who knows anything about Recovery Cafe. It's obvious that when we started Recovery Cafe, we took that exact same notion, that exact call to allow ourselves to be deeply known and loved. And we created what we call at Recovery Cafe, Recovery Circles. So all the members of all the recovery cafes across the U.S., and now there are 23, all of them have at their core this structure called the recovery circles. And that is what's at the heart of our recovery circles. We share where we're struggling and where we're experiencing grace and gratitude with others. Right, right. And there are certain commitments to be a part of a recovery circle as well, right? Commitment to really helping, I guess, pre-COVID maintain the space and, and other commitments as well, right? Uh, are, are you talking about within the recovery cafe or within these faith yeah. communities? Uh, in recovery cafe, in the, the recovery circles, right? Yes, there are commitments to showing up. And then within the, the larger recovery, so everyone's in the small recovery circle, and there is a very, we even take attendance in that circle because it helps. Attendance is just a form of loving accountability. It helps us show up. Um, right. Then there is, uh, when you show up for your recovery circle, then you have all the members, uh, all the privileges of being a member of the larger recovery cafe community. And there are some responsibilities to membership as well which is, as you pointed out, that everyone will help to care for the space and care for the community, not just the physical space, but care for each other, care for the others and support the the healing journey of all the other members. Right, right. Such an interesting model. Um, you know, I'm curious with both the faith communities and with Recovery Cafe, Think about attendance in particular. How how do you bring up both? I mean, is that ever a problem in the faith communities in recovery and in recovery cafe when it comes up? How do you broach the subject with with folks? How does the community kind of work with that situation? The idea of of accountability, or uh, I'm sorry, accountability. I guess specifically around attendance, or kind of like some of these group commitments that are maybe easier to kind of witness and observe and that maybe impact the group more so than, you know, for example, if someone, you know, I'm imagining in the faith, ecumenical faith community is 
is not meditating as much that'll, you know, or, or is not praying as much. Maybe they only have time for half their, their practice. My sense is that might affect the group less than if they are showing up only like 40% of the time, right? Or with the recovery circles, you know, whether someone's, you know, either, you know, commitments around sobriety or commitments around, you know, showing up to the group. How, how, when there are these kind of, I don't know how to frame it, but almost like uh, when people are bumping up against the commitments they've made, how does the community kind of work with that? Oh, that's a very good question. Thank you for clarifying it. We are not rigid about the commitments. If someone is having a hard time with attendance, it always leads to conversation. What's going on that's making it hard for you to show up? It, is it does it have to do with the time of day? Is it not working with your work schedule? What is going on? Is there resistance? to being in the circle with another person who's in the circle. If so, maybe we could meet the, the three of us could meet and, and work through that. But it always leads to conversation. It doesn't lead to just exile. You know, all of a sudden, you're not doing this, you're gone. It always leads to conversation. How do we support you in doing what you have said you want to do? for your own healing journey. So what's blocking your doing the very thing you've said you want to do? Right, right. Well, and I'm I'm curious, in the recovery cafe, there is like a facilitator for some of the circles, right? Like a volunteer facilitator. Right. Yes. But in the ecumenical faith communities, who's kind of having that conversation? Is that happening one-on-one? Is that, you know, just a member of the group? Is, or is there like a, a leader of the, the kind of the the small groups. How is that? How is almost like governance? I guess navigating. Well, good question. Our governance in the beloved community is very non-hierarchical and yeah, and I would say very loose. But there is each small group does have a facilitator, someone who you know just kind of keeps the sharing going so that we can. Um, observe the reality of time um yeah. limits of time because a lot of the groups some of the groups meet my group meets at 7 30 in the morning before people have to go to work so we can't go on all day we have to be done by 8 30 with our check-in so there's one person who keeps it moving and i think when there is a case of someone needing what 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 they call in Quaker the Quaker tradition someone needing eldering uh, have what? you heard that term I haven't but I love it. well if someone is um you know really bucking the the group norm in such a way that it's very clear they um they're not only disrupting others but they actually are resisting kind of surrendering to the group process, then then there would be uh, uh, some eldering, like a, maybe a couple of us who are elders <laughs> in the community might, you know, uh, want to sit down and have a conversation. What's going on here? You, you say you want to be, you know, part of something and be deeply known. And then 
what's the on the resistance here? You know, just more conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that term, and I want to go deeper into how that works in the Quaker tradition uh, <laughs> after this. That sounds super cool. Well, I'm, I'm curious. One last question on commitment, and then and then maybe shifting gears uh, for because we're coming towards the end of the time. But one of the things that's come up in our group, which I think is really interesting, is just even the word commitment can be polarizing. Like I think there are a number of folks who maybe have come from more strict religious settings, and for whom the idea of commitment. You know, I think there's almost like they're trying to move towards a real um, sense of that internal relationship with the sacred or the divine or however they understand that. And there's uh, almost like a knee-jerk reaction away from it. Um, But I think there's also an importance to it. And so can you just talk a little bit about, you know, why commitment is important or why why is that the word or phrase of the approach that kind of that you all use and how does it relate to things like intention right like an intention versus a commitment within the group well in in some ways intention and commitment are two sides of the same coin i think it a commitment when it's shared with others i commit that i'm going to do this along with you and 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 until then it's just my good intention I personally have never done as well with just good intentions. I have um, so many of them that have never really become a part of my daily life because they never made it to the, to a, a commitment to others. But when I say to others, I will spend an hour a day in prayer, that strengthens my intention it, it because it has become a commitment. It's not just a, an intention. That's how I see it. I also really empathize with people who feel like, well, these significant commitments can be a barrier to people coming into the community. And, and therefore, it's not very um, egalitarian. And I totally empathize with that that point of view. But I I do believe that in order to have something to invite people into, there has to be some kind of structure. And the commitments in um, our ecumenical faith communities and at Recovery Cafe, those structures are simply to hold the spiritual journey so that we can invite people into it. We, I, I don't think you invite someone into some amorphous, non-specified reality. It, it, you invite them into something that's being held. It, it's, it's still very mysterious. I mean, it's still mystery that we're inviting people into. The mystery of transforming love is still not something we can uh, really wrap our brains around, but but we know that it has to be lovingly held. And so that's how I view commitment. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine it becomes almost self-reinforcing. Like once an hour of prayer a day becomes, you know, a part of one's regular routine, it starts to bear fruit, if you will, in, in one's life. such that you rely less on the external and it becomes more of just like an intrinsic practice. That is so, so, so the case. It Once it, it is internalized, it becomes such a part of you that 
that no longer is the difficult thing to do. There are other things. There are always new other things that are difficult to do. But some of those early commitments that uh, some of us made, those aren't the hard things anymore. Right, right. Awesome. Well, Clint, I think we're almost at the end. I have one question that I'd really love to hear um, your, your, your thoughts on. Um, I know in your book, you talked about with Recovery Cafe, in particular, this um, goodness advice, I think, from a mentor about birth- when birthing a new project, that you've got to carry it to term and then kind of birth it and let it go and like let it walk. And that's a metaphor that's really stuck with me. And I'm curious, um, you know, especially with you know, Recovery Cafe seems like it's really taken on a life of its own. And now the model is being shared and, and replicated in other places or, or maybe adapted in other places. Um, and particularly now with Beloved is this new community that's kind of being cultivated. How do you think about kind of when to, when it's right to take that step back and to kind of let the uh, project maybe walk on its own? And, you know, as someone who is maybe the the kind of founder originator or like the the person really maybe creating a lot of the initial um, momentum to bring stuff together. How do you navigate that role in the community of, I guess, going towards being more of just an elder as opposed to when folks still might look to you as kind of, you know, when your voice still might have an outsized impact compared to other members, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that is such a great question. I will answer it like this. I allow myself to be deeply known here. I definitely feel I am in the elder phase of the Recovery Cafe's life. I am trying very hard to not have the day-to-day operations depend on my opinion, but to be able to step back far enough to just nurture the soul of the organization because the soul really needs to be vibrant in order for it to be spread and for it to make an impact and to be a healing entity in the world. And so I, I am definitely in that phase myself of trying to, to step back into the, to nurture the soul of the organization. But I do think it's difficult for some people, the temptation is control. And so for some founders, the temptation is I I need to control how everything is being lived out. And so they stay too long in the day-to-day or in the weeds out of a need for control. I think it really has to do with different personality types. My temptation has always been disengagement. And so I, I tend to, my number nine on the Enneagram personality type is to kind of disengage maybe sometimes too soon. And that's one thing Gordon Cosby always warned me about. He said, your temptation will be to disengage too soon. And, um, but I think right now I'm in that sweet spot where, oh, oh, I will say this. For those whose temptation is to disengage too soon, it's sometimes hard because people in the day-to-day don't want to let you go. They don't want to, they don't want you out of the day-to-day. Um, there's a sort of comfort in having you around. And I think that I have to resist that temptation just to to stay in the day-to-day too long just for the comfort of those who don't really need 
me in the day to day. They are so, so capable of tapping into their own inner resources and, and their own wisdom. Right, right. I don't know if that um, makes well, sense, but it, it does. It does. I think I tend to also be someone who, who tends to pull back maybe a little bit too early at times. Um, I know for me, I've been thinking about like, you know, a project, you know, you talk about really trying to preserve the soul of Recovery Cafe. And yes. I think I, a lot of what I've been thinking about is really like there has to be a soul or something like, I think the, the compass needs to be somewhat set. People kind of aligned on like where things are going before can really step back. Cause I think I'd actually be curious to hear your thoughts. One of the things I feel like I've been reflecting on is that like in some cases, like having a vision for something or feeling like something there's, I want to participate in or like some kind of container um, and then creating it. And then there it's hard to set vision. I think collaboratively sometimes I think there's like definitely really meaningful things that can happen when multiple voices are, are heard, but also like sometimes there's, uh, yeah. So I know that that's one of the things I've been making is like with, with new projects or some of these new communities really kind of coming to a sense of like, what is this community about? What are the commitments? What are the people kind of risking or, or saying, you know, what is the, the cost or the, the responsibilities of joining? And then once that's more kind of established, taking a step back, but. Yeah, I don't. Does that resonate at all to you? Is, yes, does that sound does. like a yeah? It does. It does. Thank you. I, I think what happens is the vision has to become deeply internalized by a critical mass, and mm. then you have the freedom to step back. If it's if it's only internalized by one or two, then you're, you're you don't yet have the freedom to step back. But once it is internalized by a critical mass, then that might be the time. Well, and I think it's interesting as well because, you know, there's also this interplay between the vision developing, right? Like, because the vision is not usually fully developed at the start of a project, right? And it is important to bring in other voices to bring it in to kind of clarify that yes, vision. Yes. Yeah. I, I, do, I, I do think that's where Gordon's uh, warning to me, I think he was referring to those early days Yes, a vision is constantly evolving, but I think I think the core of the vision, he was saying, if you step back too soon when the core of the vision has not yet been internalized by a critical mass, you are very likely to lose the vision, lose the whole thing. Right, right. That is a, I think, a really great place to end. I, <laughs> That's kind I of will a ponder. New, it's kind of a new day. place to end. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's it's like learning the learning the riverbanks, right? Like how to how to bring <laughs> something new to life. Um, yeah. Um, Killian, this has been such a pleasure. I, I'm so I, I, I love your book, and I would highly recommend everyone reading it. Um, you're doing such interesting work for folks who want to find out more about you. Um, and, and the work you're doing now, um, where should they find you? Where should... uh, our website, recoverycafe.org or the recoverycafenetwork.org. If you are interested in, in starting a recovery cafe in your city or town, we would love to walk alongside you. So look us up at recoverycafenetwork.org. Wonderful. Well, Clayton, thank you so much for taking the time today. I always enjoyed being with you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. 
For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.